This is Disaster Tales. This episode was recorded February 20th, 2020. Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather, and welcome to Disaster Tales. Today, my guest is Liz Root, who is a co-worker of mine from the Federal Emergency Management Agency and also has other work that she does with various places and agencies. And so I'm going to tell you, hi, Liz, how are you today? I'm well, thank you, Katie. Good. So we were talking a lot when we were working together in California about immediate emergency housing and the problems that that happen when people don't have a house to live in. And in our case, it's mostly because of the disaster, but there's a lot, there's a half a million people. Actually, in 2018, it said 552, 830 people who were homeless in the United States at that time. A lot of people. And we even, if you remember, had problems registering um, disaster victims who were homeless, who couldn't identify way, where they put up their tents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, also if you don't, a lot of times if you don't have an ownership or you don't have a rental agreement, it's difficult for us to do any kind of assistance at all. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a place that you're living except your car, then it's kind of difficult to... Uh, kind of difficult to get the documentation that you need to get assistance from the federal government. Correct. I remember that uh, specifically during the campfire that many people uh, just were able to leave in a vehicle or somebody else's vehicle. And what address do you label to that? Um, I mean, obviously they had addresses in paradise, but in, in many cases it was very difficult. Well, that's that's true because um, you're talking about a, the, their current address and their current contact information after their home is destroyed, correct? Correct. There's also people, though, who were living in their cars, and the only kind of address that we could get was behind the Walmart in my car and was their address. And so... You know, that's something difficult to document. I know we had one woman that had some severe physical disabilities and her, she was sleeping in her car behind the Walmart and we really couldn't do a whole lot for her. That's right. We also had a lot of people that would come in. Of course, in a disaster, the Red Cross and other agencies will put up shelters. And I've actually done some of those shelters myself when I was working with Red Cross. And... They're great because they're warm and they're clean, and but as far as actually trying to function in them, it's difficult because it's generally set up as all one room, cots right next to one another, and the only thing that you have be like your bedding and everything else is pretty much what you bring with you. So it's really difficult um, for people to live in a shelter, especially if they're if they have any kind of problems with noise, if they have a mental illness or PTSD, or if they're just cranky, or <laughs> if they're fearful, if they have panic attacks and things like that. Also, 
if you have children, small children, I think it would be difficult for me to sleep in a shelter with hundreds of people and small children there because you never know who is in your shelter. I mean, they take in everyone, which is great, but you know, what's, who's the guy in the cot next to you if you don't know who, if you don't know him and who's going to keep track your children while you're asleep. That's correct. And that was the number one complaint that we had um, with respect to the campfire is, is that the insufficiency of the privacy, the concern for family security, uh, the lack of space, the noise, as well as other issues with regard to uh, dignity, really. Mm-hmm. Mention the food. Yeah, well, you know, and they do serve food at the shelters, which is great. But, you, of course, you don't have your choice. And they do try to be sensitive to dietary needs and dietary cultural needs. But still, it's, you know, it's meant to be temporary. It's meant to be temporary, but many of those individuals lived in that environment for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was exceedingly difficult for them. There were even some people who told me that they would live outside of the shelter in their car because it was just so unsatisfactory uh, living conditions. Right. Well, I know that um, what, during the campfire, immediately afterwards, because it burned that entire town of Paradise and most of Megalia and some other areas, and there was absolutely nowhere for people to stay. And and if you consider that there was already a housing shortage in California to begin with, every time we have a disaster, that shortage becomes larger. And so what we ended up and had was a, a large number of people were sleeping out in the Walmart parking lot. And Walmart actually welcome them there for the first 30 days and let them come in and use their restrooms and things like that. And, but there was no actual shelter there. So you were either in your car or in a tent or just out in the open. And I remember one man came in and said he was living with his seven-year-old son sleeping between cars so that they would be safe and kind of help block out the wind. But it was winter and it was cold. And he, and that was just one of many. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. It was a it was a fairly consistent uh, complaint, and unfortunately, there was very little as um, as IA specialists that we could do about that. Yeah, individual assistance is is IA, and that's mm-hmm. what we were trying to do. But I think that not just in disasters, although I think that we need to try and come up with. And another program besides, okay, when people are unhoused because of a disaster, they come in and a lot of people have heard about the FEMA FEMA trailers because FEMA will bring in mobile homes and travel trailers for people to stay in temporarily, but mostly until their homes are rebuilt. So if you're a homeowner, you're more likely to qualify for a trailer program than you are as a renter. Correct. But... Those trailers don't even start coming in for the for 30 days or so. And for us as workers, 
the trailer program is like Fight Club. You know, you don't talk about Fight Club. And we don't talk about the trailer program to our applicants because we don't know what, how it's going to happen or when. That's correct. That's correct. Um, and that's very uncomfortable, really, when so many people come in daily and often. They come in a number of times a day. Once they find out about the temporary um, uh, trailers, they really, you know, they, they need something. Because if you remember, there was no place, there was no place to transition these people outside of Chico. It, and in point of fact, um, within a couple of hundred miles. That's right. Well, we were driving an hour each way every day so that we would leave closer places for the disaster survivors to stay. That's correct. And we still had people uh, staying farther out than we were. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, we had uh, three hours round trip every day, and most of the uh, individual assistance FEMA um, specialists had a two-hour, which was a four-hour round trip to, uh, trip every day. Yeah, that's right. Um, Not to mention the victims of the campfire. That's true. Well, now you were talking about the dignity of shelter. I, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter is, food and shelter are the first things that you have to have because without those, you really don't have the capacity to for example, start making plans or grieve or things like that. So, because you're all about finding a safe, dry, warm place to stay. Food, sheltering, clothing. If you don't have adequate showers, if you don't have adequate toiletries, if you don't have adequate um, personal uh toiletries that you may need, not to mention medication. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was very difficult on those individuals who were at the Red Cross uh, shelters. Yeah, yeah, it was. And the other thing that happened... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the other thing that happened in the shelter, and it happens almost every time, is that the, a, a sickness goes through, a cold or a virus or something like that. Everybody gets sick. And if you have, yeah. if you have, for example, children that have health issues, how are you going to keep them from getting those diseases? Because they even go around That's where right. we work, from from worker to worker. So, Not to mention how many times we got sick. Exactly. At least I did. Mm -hmm. I uh, was lucky enough to get medical services or, or a script for antibiotic the first time, Thanksgiving, uh, I had to go into urgent care and many comrades were also ill. Yeah, I think I met, I went to urgent care there as well. Because, yeah, because, yeah, we were all sick. Sorry about that. So... What what kind of, I know we talked a lot about possible solves for this issue. And, you know, it's difficult 
we were actually working with people who would come in and say, okay, I'm paying, I was paying $700 a month for a room in a house. So the shelter that's available in California is extremely limited. I don't think people from the other parts of the country really understand how little housing there is available there. And not only that, but um, <laughs> under a system of uh, free enterprise, essentially the rates of those places in Chico and the surrounding areas went up, which meant that essentially our figures for temporary shelter and rental were inadequate. Right. Well, and when and when the government does the rental assistance. They generally go by what's called the fair market value. And hold on a second. <laughs> and fair market value is determined nationally on a county-by-county county basis. And what they try to do is take the average for the entire county, and then they use that as a base to calculate how much you would get for a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom or three-bedroom rental. And like mm -hmm. you said, in some places, that's just not adequate. And especially in places where there's a lot of rural area where it's very, very low-cost housing compared to an urban area in the same county where it's very high-cost housing, um, that fair market value doesn't even come close. No, it didn't. And the real sadness for many of these individuals was that there was such a lack of any kind of housing in the Chico area. Many individuals had to uh, stay in other rural areas and drive their children to school or drive to work in the Chico area or drive uh, several hours a day just shuffling um, between two individual places where, as a result of the fact that shelter was just non-existent at some point in Chico. Yeah, that's right. I remember people, and this happens in, in all the disasters I've been to, the parents will come in and they'll try to, they'll, they'll apply for assistance and that's what we help them with. But then they'll say, well, my, my 18-year-old is staying with his brother and my 16-year-old is with her boyfriend's family and my little kids are at their grandmother's. And so the family is split at a time when you want to feel like your family is safe and together. Yes. And at, because that's another issue. You, you know, you can't, if you don't, can't house everyone together, you know, it makes it very difficult for the family to function. I am sure that the Red Cross was still in existence. The Red Cross shelter was still in existence when I left the first of the year of 2019. And that's very unusual because they try to close out those shelters and get people into actual housing as quickly as they can. And for them to stay open for months and months, that's, that's really, uh, it really is unusual for them to do that. Because even in some of the big hurricanes and things I've been in, they've closed them out within 30 to 45 days sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
We talked a lot about sustainable housing and something that um, something that allows for greater dignity uh, for temporary shelter, but maybe something that can evolve into something that can be reusable. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot I don't of. Know. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please. <laughs> I was going to say we looked at. Because I, I have done a lot of research on this, and I think you've done some too. There's a lot of unusual and creative options out there for temporary housing and for permanent housing that's sustainable. And maybe we could talk about some of those. Um, sustainable in so far as being green, sustainable in so far as being simple, um, sustainable in being able to um, have uh, basic utilities of, uh, of, of electricity and water, mm-hmm. at the very least. Right. Yeah, you have to have the sanitation, and you have to have water, and you have to have... Uh, it's, if you can get power, that's great. <laughs> I know that, you know, we, we go out, we set up those trailers, and we, we pour the concrete pad that it sits on. We put the post up and run the electricity in. We will also run the sewer out of the trailer and a little bit of lip, uh, And I think that, um, and, and that, set, that setup is all done by the federal government, which is great, except that, like I said, it takes a long time for those things to happen. One of the things that we were looking at was housing that you could truck in I know that there was some housing that was like, you can ship in boxes, and, and the boxes... Pod. Go ahead. Pods. Yeah. Pods, very, very much so, pods. And they ha- those have to be converted, but there's no reason that we can't get pre-converted pods. I know some of the pod size housing I saw actually had a hinge that went down each side so that you would fold in the wall halfway and then the top would lower down and so it would store flat and and when it's flat like that you could actually put eight ten of them maybe even a dozen on a truck and bring them in Um, and and those the way that those were set up they already had power run through the walls they had a they had a place for um, the electrical to be plugged in. They had windows. They had, I think some of them had f- restroom facilities in them. But uh, you can, you know, you could come in and instead of setting up a trailer park, you could go to the Walmart parking lot and set all these up for 30 days until it's time for the trailers to get there. Um, exactly. If they can do it from moving furniture... How difficult would it be to transform that into temporary shelter? Mm-hmm. And like I said, if there if the investment could be made in purchasing or leasing or whatever um, the the prepared pod style housing, I think that that would be a really good investment because it's not as expensive I, as a mobile home, and it's not. It's not as expensive as sending individuals tr- to, to transitional housing. Uh, 
usually motels, hotels, and uh, and the like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. Uh, go ahead. I mean, that just isn't cost effective. No, it's really not. Um, some of the other housing that we looked at also was personal portable housing. Do you remember looking at those? I do. That would be for one I or do. two people? Mm-hmm. I do. Which ones did you look- which ones did you like? Um I liked I liked the ones that uh you know were not brick and mortar but they were talking about straw, they were talking about styrofoam, they were talking about a number of materials that are green and that essentially are simple to uh to put up. Mm-hmm. So it would be um not so much a pop-up unit, but it would be something that you would build. A little bit more than a tent. Mm-hmm. A tent popped up, but that didn't really afford warmth to the individuals in the Walmart parking lot. Right. And you can't really build a fire in a fire zone <laughs> to stay warm. No. I was actually saw that in Syria they're having a real problem with people dying out in of exposure because they're having to leave the cities because of the war. And I was reading one example of these people that had a tent, but it was it was like zero degrees and they had an infant. And so they had a little kerosene heater and they brought it inside the tent to keep them warm. And of course, several of them died from carbon monoxide poisoning. So yes. open fires are not the best thing as far as heating and cooking goes. And the difference there is that they still use a great amount of coal. Mm -hmm. And breathing with regard to coal after a while can cause respiratory uh, problems as well. True. Yeah. um, Even wood fires, they can cause you respiratory problems if they're not properly made. Mm -hmm. But as far as, yeah, there's something more... One of the things I wonder is because FEMA has all this plastic tarping that they give out for roof cover during a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I can see easily, because I've done a lot of research into um, like woodsmanship, you know, woodcraft and uh, Mm -hmm. camping and things like that, is that even if you just had some of those tarps, you can make an adequate shelter if it's not too freezing cold. Which it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, if you also remember, there was a great deal of rain. Mm Mm-hmm. And flooding, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Because there's no... After a fire, the vegetation is gone, and so what keeps the rain soaked into the ground isn't there anymore, and it just runs off. And that results in flooding and mudslides. Mm-hmm. So it's a vicious circle. The, muds, mm-hmm. the mudslides cause vegetation to disappear. And then what does manage to grow is dried out and sparse. And then it catches fire easily. And then we rain, rain again. So vicious circle. Mm-hmm. So what, kind, what, what do you think that we need to be looking at in housing disaster survivors in the in the short term the immediate emergency housing if we're not if we're going to augment the shelter system 
something more sustainable than the Red Cross shelters, you mean? Yes. And and more uh, more private and and more secure. You know they have yurts. Mm-hmm. A hexa yurt cardboard house. They have um, I mean I, I realize that if you have temporary shelter, there may not be the ability to have to have uh, uh, water or um, utilities, but to have portable toilets and and showers and such, especially with the use of solar panels. Mm-hmm. But if you sustain the materials, even with tents sustain them with a greater fabric or a greater substance that would allow for uh, protection from rain and the cold and protection from uh, the sun in in warmer climates. Um, We need to do, I think, a greater investment into research and development into recycled polyester, lightweight aluminum, uh, something that's capable of popping up yet still retaining heat and coolness. Well, I've seen a man who has done, and he's an engineer, he's done this for years, but he takes the corrugated plastic that they that they mm-hmm. print um, voters, not voters, but that they print candidate signs on during elections, and he's taken mm-hmm. those, and they're nat- naturally insulated because of the channels of the corrugated paper, and like cardboard, and mm-hmm. taken those and made small portable shelters that he can like hook up to the back of his bicycle or stuff in his trunk and then reassemble quickly. And, uh, and that's all recycled material. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're dealing, when I say we, I mean FEMA, we're dealing in these great big, these great big uh, trailers, really mobile homes. Mm-hmm. Um, you could still utilize... If you wanted to go to the automobile, you could still utilize RVs. Mm -hmm. You could still utilize other forms of uh, uh, smaller forms that are more mobile and don't necessarily have to be transferred through huge cargo uh, equipment. That's true. Yeah. Uh, For example, a yurt, which for people who may not know is a it's a circular building that's on a platform and it has a conical top and it's usually put up with uh, like a lattice as walls and then that's all reinforced and insulated and so they're actually pretty cozy and they've been using them on the steps in Eurasia for hundreds of thousands of years I guess and uh, I've seen some permanent ones and they're very nice I, I personally would like to see an emergency uh, disaster management that has a more adoptable, quick, efficient uh, form of temporary housing. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we're talking about the federal government, who's not always quick and efficient. <laughs> but if we include it into our plans, we can, we can start to be. But you know, even today we're talking about we're talking about uh, 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 how best to compose the 
the virus that's affecting China and South Korea. I mean, many of these principles and tenets are cross-transferable. Because we're talking about protection and isolation, not in in so far as the disaster victim, but a form of protection and privacy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, 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 I just think it's time to rethink our forms of emergency shelter. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the things that we talked about, because when they set us up, our office was in a big box store that had been that had gone out of business at the mall. And one of the things that we looked at was there's like family units. It's a it's a box that has a sleeping quarters and a small kitchen and a small bathroom that you could actually put inside a large box store like that. And I think we figured out that we could probably put in, what, maybe 25 units in that one store? Because the units are like maybe 16 by 12. Mm -hmm. And if they did that, they could put entire families in there and they'd have access to the restrooms and electricity that were already going to the store. Yes. And that would provide a nice, warm, and secure shelter because if you have one of those box units, you can lock it. And it, mm-hmm. and it has a top on it. So, you know, it's, nobody's going to be able to get in. And you can, anything that you get, like af, if you've lost everything in a disaster and you go to a, to a recovery center, they'll give you things like blankets and they'll give you food and water and they'll give you, some of them have clothing or, or vouchers for clothing or just, you know, all these things that if you don't have a place to keep them, they're a real burden, even though they're things that you need. That's correct. And these people left with uh, very few clothing, very few personal items. They they were lucky to leave alive. That's true. And some of them were not that lucky because I, in in that particular fire, I think we lost, how many did we 86. lose? 86. 86. Yeah, and and some of them were caught in a traffic jam because the the roads weren't adequate for an emergency evacuation. They're adequate for day to day going in and out, but if everybody has to go out at once and then there's only one bottleneck, it's yeah, it's it's a killer and it killed a lot of people. I hope in this area though that the the government does some research and development with regard to quickly adapting. I I think that's something that maybe the states or the counties are are more uh, able to quickly deliver than the federal government. Yeah, except that they're in a disaster, in a large disaster, they're dependent for 75% of the funding comes from FEMA and 25% is is local and state. So... um, they don't really have the financial resources to like buy a bunch of these units and kind of just keep them around until they need to be used. They they really almost need to be purchased on a nationwide scale so that they like the trailers can be moved in and out, but it's going to be a lot quicker cuz they're smaller and because they're sustainable they're going to last longer. Cuz those trailers mm-hmm. I've I've 
done the repo on those trailers and the recertifications, excuse me, and the recertifications. And some of the trailers come back great. Some of them come back completely unusable. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of money, a lot of money for one of those trailers to have to just write it off. I agree. I agree. Hold on. That is my friend Scam Likely, who calls me all the time. <laughs> but I don't want to talk to him today, so. <laughs> so what? This is an area. This is an area that could take up. I mean, so much conversation, and uh, really, we we. I think in emergency management, the current process is somewhat archaic. Yeah, well, we've, it's a tried and true, and they've been using it for a long time. And so when so we have a set procedure for everything when we go into a site, which is great. But I, but what you're talking about is making a more flexible, making more flexible decisions about the housing, so that we don't have yeah. to say the only housing we can give you is a trailer, and you have to wait a month to get it. If you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, if you're lucky. <laughs> and, uh, and but but you with know all there's due respect. You don't need the sp- all... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say you don't need the space that you need for a trailer to set up housing short term housing for a small family. Yes. Yes. Um you you cannot there were 27, 26 some odd thousand people. You cannot squash them in their Superdome uh, in, uh, in Texas, or you cannot squash them in a Red Cross shelter and exact the things that are necessary to give people uh, a chance to... Uh, to relieve their trauma in an in an in an, uh, a major disaster, right? And and trauma is of course something that a lot of people put it off until they feel safe to deal with it. Because if you're dealing with trying to keep your children together and safe, and f- finding food, and trying to find warm clothing, and trying to you know, do all these things that you have to do just to get through to the next day, you don't have time to sit down and fall apart and then try and put yourself back together again. You don't have time to go to even start that grief process until you're at a point where you can say, I don't have to worry about anything else right now, so I'm going to do this now. That's correct. I couldn't agree with you more. But... um, uh, I, I I know this this is a complicated topic, and uh, when individual assistance of FEMA grants a registration process and information, I mean everyone tried very very hard to make them feel comfortable. But when they come in several times a day, um, and this is a primary complaint, it, it's really tough to uh, not be able to give them 
just basic needs of everyday living, even in a disaster. It is, it is. And and our hands are, as workers, our hands are tied as to what we can and cannot assist them with. Fortunately, mm-hmm. most of the states step up and... In California, it's wonderful because they put all the state and federal agencies and nonprofit agencies under one roof in one place. And that so, was terribly helpful. Yes, it was. Because then you can say, oh, well, you need, you need this. Well, why don't you go talk to these people? Or you don't have your proof of I- your identification that we need from you? Well, Motor Vehicles is over on this side of the building. And mm-hmm. you can get a copy of your license there or... You know, the county is over here and they can get you a copy of birth certificates. And and if you need, you know, Sue Chi, one of the one of the nonprofit assistance organizations, they're giving out they're giving out gift cards and they're giving out blankets. I mean, if you're cold, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's one place you definitely want to go. That's correct. They I think they gave out something like six million dollars. Yeah, something like that in uh, financial relief, and uh, as did other agencies, the Caltrans. Oh my goodness, uh, it was basically uh, food and clothing. I mean, gift cards. It was right. it was wonderful. Yeah, there was even a gentleman who was out. He would go out in the line of people waiting to come into the to the center and hand out hundred dollar mm-hmm. bills. Until he mm-hmm. ran out, and he would, and he, the, what they told me is that he would say, "You make sure and share this with someone." Mm-hmm. Which you know, some of them did, some of them really were helping their family and didn't. But I think that you know, of course, in a disaster, a lot of philanthropy comes out in people that some of them don't even realize that they have. People want to help, and mm-hmm. and, and which is great. They can do things that we can't. Exactly. Remember how they delivered food and clothing to the Walmart Center? It was kind of like a major distribution point. Yes. Yeah, and and Walmart was great in that because that's the same place where people were camping out, too. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, even businesses will pitch in and assist. Are there other things you'd like to talk about? Well, I mean, in so far as emergency shelter and, um, uh, you know, if they can make plastic shoes and things like that, I just would like some imagination and creativity with regard to simple materials that are sustainable. Yeah, I've actually seen, there was somebody in California during that disaster who was making, building the tiny houses for people Mm -hmm. to stay in. And mm-hmm. you can you can do a lot of things with that, and you can use recycled materials. You can use novel materials instead of just wood and nails mm-hmm. and things like that. And then, you know, the design of those is to maximize the space as much as possible to make for storage and usage. And they consider trying to make private areas and things like that. And I think that course i don't know those are those are nice and they're great and they're portable but what we need is something that's either temporary because it's a transitional it's a very short-term transitional time that we're looking at that we have a lack of housing Mm 
So we need something that they can be made. I've actually seen structures made out of rolled paper logs. They're tubes. Yes. And yes. I've seen um, things made out of, like I said, the corrugated plastic and, and cardboard even. And it's, you know, it's not a refrigerator box. It's actually something that's can be structured and, and sturdy and can be locked up for security. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that the Red Cross has years decades of experience with regard to emergency shelter, but based upon my experience, especially at the campfire, it just was wholly inadequate. Yeah, well, you know, a, a, a group, a mass shelter, and that's what they're doing is they're doing mass care, is meant for very short term. It, You know, you can't, when you start having a mass shelter that goes on for months and months, then it's it's not practical anymore. You know, the, the people are not getting what they need to to move forward. You know, when you first get to a shelter, it's great. It's warm. There's food. There's coffee. There's a place to lay down and sleep. There's bathrooms. There's showers. It's wonderful for the first week, you know, and then... And then the longer you're in there, the more difficult it becomes to try and psychologically and physically move yourself forward into recovery. It is difficult, but you have absolutely no resources. Many of those individuals have no resources, right? no furnishings, no furniture. Um, I, I mean, it, the more you lose the more difficult it is to pull yourself out. Right. And some people only need to be out for 30 days before they have someplace permanent to stay. But staying in a shelter like that, you don't, I can't, I wouldn't be able to sleep probably at all without heavily drugging myself in a situation like that. I know a lot of women who have been assault victims who definitely don't need to be in that situation. I know veterans mm -hmm that don't need to be in that situation. And even though the Red Cross does attempt to get, to put aside a quieter space and then even a space for children to play, like a small daycare or babysitters, it, that's still, you're mm -hmm. still under the same roof and it's, it's loud and it's disruptive and people, the longer they're there, the shorter their tempers get. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it, it's great for what it was originally designed for, but for long-term, for short long-term, I should say, <laughs> it's, it's not ideal. So what, you're really saying is, what you're really saying is that, is that the emergency shelter is only meant for a very, very short period of time. But how do you, how do you then move in quickly? That, that's the issue. How do you move in quickly? a longer sustainable housing for those individuals who um, have completely lost their resources. Yeah. Um, and so what kind of, what, what options have you, have you seen that are, but might be worth pursuing? Because first off for the first night, you know, we could be handing out tents. They're not expensive. They're disposable. And 
if you're going to have to spend a couple of nights in the parking lot, a tent is perfect. I agree with you. Do you remember um, Hurricane Katrina? Oh, yes. I was there. (laughs) And um, at that time, I actually bought one of these. I have one of them in my attic. It is a cot with a dome that goes over the cot for Mm -hmm. privacy. Um, I don't, I mean, even that is somewhat more sustainable. Yeah. In a mass shelter, that would give you the privacy that you need. It's in the sense of security. It's not actual security, but in a mass shelter where there's people watching throughout the night, Mm -hmm. then, uh, yeah, that, that would be an excellent short-term measure. But not only that, you're absolutely right. Just handing out tents. Mm-hmm. How easy is that to put up? Well, and you could, e- you could even hand out tents inside of a mass shelter because you can, you can get tents that have the poles and the cords but that don't have to be, you know, staked into the ground. And if you had a four or five-man tent, you could keep your family in there. And you'd, yes. have, you'd have the feeling of privacy and security, and you'd be able to contain small children and things like that. So, you know, even a tent in a shelter. Or I remember seeing during the influenza epidemic of 1917, 1918, yeah, 1918, that they made emergency hospitals in, like, gyms, like you do a mass shelter, and they, mm-hmm. But they set up partitions between each of the beds because they didn't want the contagion to spread. And even, exactly. even if they went and bought PVC pipe and joints and set up like little two or three bed units that you could put sheets over, that would give you privacy and a little more sense of security. Yes. So there's some... Dividers, PCP pipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, bedding just draped over. Right. Even that, but the whole point of the Red Cross is just to get as close together the cots that can be in order to get the greatest number of individuals in. Right. And they have an actual prescribed square footage per cot. So, yes. And um, of course, depending on, I know that the Army does the same thing, and they have. Part of the reason that they have that square footage and the distance between the cots is to is to reduce contagion. Yes. But uh, you know, if you're trying to talk to somebody and you're you're upset about what's happened to you, and there's people around you that are talking or arguing or complaining, and there's kids running around and screaming, and I mean, how are you supposed to start to get your mind focused at all? when you have that much input in addition to the stuff that's already going around in your mind. We have a cat in this interview. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she's, she's meowing. Yep. But, um, you know, it's like I said, for the short term for, Oh my God, I need a place that's warm to stay and something to eat. And I need to use the bathroom. Masks, mass shelters are great. But, yeah, well, you know, it needs to, we need to come up with some other alternatives that give people more privacy and security in a, in a longer short term. 
You know, the trailers, they keep those sometimes for years, waiting for their homes to be repaired. But, mm-hmm. but what we're talking about is for weeks. That's where the shortfall is. Couple, maybe yes. months, yeah. Well, we look forward then to the future with regard to the development of this. And um, uh, I know that uh, my concern is, is adding trauma onto trauma, onto trauma. Mm-hmm. And explain that. Um, what I mean by trauma is that essentially compounded trauma is, is that essentially those first 30 days, those first 60 days, individuals are still in shock. And with an environment that doesn't allow personal dignity and, and privacy, you're adding on to that, to that trauma. It's a secondary trauma. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that, and, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I was no, going to say, that's something that I talked with Dr. Olberger about in the last episode, was that, uh, you know, there's vicarious trauma. There's, there's trauma that you get from having to work with people who've been traumatized. There's trauma that you mm-hmm. get when your relatives have been through a disaster or someone has been killed. And, it's, and that kind of trauma doesn't get recognized because the people who were directly affected are, oh, you're so lucky you made it. You shouldn't feel bad because you 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 made it. Yeah. And then the other people, you know, like if if it happened to my children, I'd be very upset. But it didn't happen to you. It's not about you. You don't have. There's no reason for you to get upset. You know. And the same with mm-hmm. the workers. The workers. We hear these stories over and over, and and some of them are really difficult to listen to. And some people we just can't help, and we know they need help. And so that's a tra- traumatic experience for us, but we, I mean, it's like, well, why, how come you're upset? Because that didn't happen to you. It happened to them. So that, correct. So that there's not only just the trauma for the survivors, but there's trauma for the people around them and, yes, and dealing with that because, you know, if you've, if you've lost everything in a flood or a fire and then you hear people complaining about, well, you know, now I can't drive through town because there's too much traffic or there's, you know, there's something, there, there, there's strange people that are living in the YMCA and I can't go there and exercise or I can't go to church or school because there's a shelter there or things like that where people have legitimate, legitimate concerns and legitimate complaints. But those those complaints are... It's like, it's not important enough for you to be complaining, you know? It's Other people minuscule. have it worse. That's correct. They do. It's minuscule compared to a, a victim of a major disaster. It is. But it's still trauma for them. Yes, it is. I agree. And we got, we got a little off field there. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's... When, when there's a disaster in a community, everybody suffers, whether they were directly affected or not. You know, we didn't really get off of it, Katie, because essentially these are the things that do not promote evolving and growing out of a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. These are the, the preventative factors that are very, very difficult, especially, I mean, depression 
depression was prevalent. Yes. Uh, it's very difficult. To, it can uh, it can essentially stagnate any progress toward uh, bringing yourself out of, of of a major disaster. Right, and then there's anxiety as well, which is which is the other really big emotion that that holds people back. The, the basics of food, shelter, and clothing are paramount. They're paramount factors when you talk about people evolving from major disasters. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just think we need to, uh, a country as wealthy as ours needs to be a little more sophisticated about bringing those individuals out and, 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 and giving them money is not necessarily the answer. No, it's not. Because even if you have rental money for the next two months, if there's no place to rent, it's it's like rocks in your pocket. It's nothing. And you don't want to take your child out of school because they've already been through enough trauma. But if there's no place to live in your home, town, then you may end up and have to move your child to another location. So, you know, even for children that don't have any kind of disabilities or in, what's the word I'm thinking of? Hindrances. Um, because, for example, children who have autism, if you, if you change their routine and things like that, it, it's very, very difficult for them to, to cope with those kind of changes. And, uh, you know, adding on to those changes by having to go to a hotel and then go to a mass shelter and then go to a, you know, whatever you can find or stay in your car for a couple of nights. Even for, even for people that don't have those kind of, um, can't think of the right word, who don't have those kind of issues to deal with, uh, it's difficult. I just, I, I feel um, confident though that uh, FEMA is, for all intents and purposes, a young agency considering. And I feel that uh, every, every time I'm called as a reservist, that um, I look forward to a greater progress with regard to, to the issue of uh, assisting those victims, not just registering them, but the logistics issue. I realize it's a very complicated matter. Mm-hmm. Well, so going forward, what kind of things do you think that we could do or work on or promote to try and help with this, the, the housing issue? Because the housing issue is something that, that it just has, it affects everything else. If you're not properly housed, then you can't really move forward and do anything else as at least as well as you normally would. So that requires, that requires a management at the top that is, is essentially sensitive toward progress in something other than once the red cross finishes the mass shelter that's necessary, but the temporary shelter that's also necessary until such time as um, individuals can um, can cope with the loss of everything they have. 
Yeah. So do you think that maybe finding, doing the research and encouraging maybe grants for people to develop some kind of temporary disposable or reusable housing is an option? I think that there are many proposals out there with respect to this kind of housing, but I think, honestly, FEMA's top management needs to be receptive to the idea of adopting these. True. But barring that, because we know that even if that happens, it's going to take a while, um, maybe the formation of a nonprofit to start to address some of these issues, to look at the problems, identify them, um, invest in the research, and actual manufacture and distribution. Maybe that's something that folks that are good at those kind of things could start doing. I know that there are. I agree with. I know there's a lot of universities that do have programs that specifically address designing housing for people that are homeless. Yes. And then the problem is getting it out there on the street to people, and then having the community accept that it's going to be on the street. Yes. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's exactly needs to happen. But still, governmental agencies need to be a little more flexible with regard to the progress of improvement. Well, I do know that after Hurricane Katrina, there was a pilot program where they actually built houses in some of the spaces where the houses had been before. And they would let the people move into the house and then the, they would pay they would pay a mortgage it wasn't very high mortgage because it was subsidized housing, obviously, but they would pay for two or three years and then the, the, the title would be turned over to them and the house would be theirs and it would be paid off. And that's, and that, that's one idea that's absolutely permissible. And, and that's something uh, that FEMA did. That's, that was a FEMA project. So th- the acceptance for of it is there. It's just trying to well with any government agency, you got to get got to get them in motion, got to get that inertia started before they'll actually move. Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, it's not necessarily about the federal government. You also have the state and the county, the county which has an awful lot of um, uh, authority and power to dictate the details of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, For, for your everyday homelessness, which is, which is still a huge issue. The biggest thing that I see is, is zoning and regulations about having housing on the street. I know that there's a gentleman somewhere in California who is also making tiny houses and he's giving them to people who are homeless on the street, but you have to put them on the street. You have to, physically put them on the sidewalk in front of other people's houses. And And that's an issue as well. Yeah, because those people will call the police and say, they need to move move this thing out from in front of my house. Exactly. Because it's the planning department uh, of every county that essentially dictates areas and the kind of uh, and the kind of housing that you can have and where you can have it. This was an issue just with tiny houses. Mm-hmm. 
still is. It is. And a lot of those tiny houses have the composting toilets and things like that. So they they don't have to be hooked up to a municipal system in order to function. Mm-hmm. But as far as the zoning goes, yeah, that's something that probably does need to be addressed. The other thing is we need to start looking at affordable housing available because one of the main reasons that people are out on the streets is they have a low paying job. They have a job. They just, it doesn't make enough for them to pay rent anywhere or to buy a house or anything else. That's, that's an issue whether you have a, a declared disaster or not, or a major disaster, affordable housing in this country, especially when you talk about affordable housing in California, where the campfire was, uh, it's just, it's a huge issue, huge. Well, another housing issue that uh, it's that happened in, this happened in Puerto Rico. I saw this after Hurricane Maria. They ev- FEMA paid to evacuate people from Puerto Rico. And they put them in Miami, and they put them in Virginia, they put them in Boston, they put them in New York City, they put them all over the place, but they never paid for them to go back. And. Right. And so what happened was you have these people who have a home that was damaged or destroyed, own the lot, but they can't get enough money to go back. And even if they go back there, there's no place for them to stay until their home is repaired. And so what ends up and happens is they're so desperate for money because if you're not going to go back, you got to have a new life. You have to find a job. You have to find housing. And a lot of them signed up for Section 8 housing, which there's always a huge wait for. And mm-hmm. and so what happens is that these people will come along um, to take advantage. They'll say, look, you're never going to go back to your house. I'll buy this lot for X amount, which is well below what it would go for under normal times. And so mm-hmm. that way they get cash in hand to try and survive, but they lose the property that was theirs because there's, they can't get back to it and make the repairs. So, you know, that's, and that's where the system, the system is actually contributing to this disaster capitalism where people go in and snap things up that no, or wouldn't normally be available. That's a great term, disaster capitalism. That's Naomi Klein. <laughs> She's she's an author. She writes about it a lot. But yeah, that's, you know, they get taken advantage of. They're in a situation where they have to take the cash because they have to mm-hmm. feed their family. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to learn, Katie. We do. And I appreciate you chatting with me about this. This is one of my lecture 204 subjects. <laughs> where You g- give me a give me a soapbox and I'll go on about it for hours. <laughs> But, uh, no, but, but it, it, whether we're talking about disaster relief or national homelessness, I mean, there's so many other, there's so many other angles like inequity mm-hmm. of those who have and those who have not, which is rising in this country. So, you know, this issue of food, shelter and clothing, I mean, it's basic. Exactly. But I appreciate you talking with me today. Oh, same here. And I'm glad that we could actually get together and have it work. (laughs) We'll have to, 
Yeah. And just so you know, it took us forever to get the right programs, to make the right recordings and to get the recorder to work. So we had some technical difficulties with this, but I'm really glad we got a chance to do it. And I hope maybe we'll get a chance to do it again. Anytime I'll research um, and uh, uh, promote information, you know, that uh, along these areas, because there's so many topics that there are, you know, if we're going to be a greater, kinder society, these are pertinent issues. They are, they are. And the issue of homelessness, preventable homelessness. You know, one of the things that when <laughs> when my cat was running for president in 2008, we had that housing bubble. <laughs> I know, uh-huh. it's, it's insane. But we had that housing bubble and it made me think, because I had to think up all of his platforms, all of the planks mm-hmm. in his platform, is that we had all these foreclosures and these families were homeless But then we had all these empty houses that nobody was buying. And those houses were being vandalized. They were ripping out the copper. They were tearing them up, burning, you know, stealing, molding windows, doors, all this stuff, so that they became virtually worthless as real estate while the banks owned them. And my thought was, why not pay people to stay in those houses? Why not pay somebody to to live in a house that's empty, somebody who doesn't have a house to live in because of the economic situation. You know, that way the, the, the real estate would be protected, it could be resold, and the people that were housed would have a chance to build up some, some kind of funds or equity and, and either, you know, rent to own or find another place to live. Have a sale with the bank. Exactly. You know, let, I mean, even if... Banks lost an incredible amount of money by essentially they had so many vacant homes that there were individuals, and I'm talking about Las Vegas, mm-hmm. that essentially just went in there and lived. And you're, you're right, they were ransacked. Many of these homes, an adjuster never went out or the bank never went out with regard to, like you say, making an, uh, a, a mutual understanding agreement with regard to just being in that home mm-hmm. that would essentially have afforded that family and the bank some future prospect of, uh, of a win-win situation. Right, right. And, and there's something in our culture that says, well, they didn't earn it or, you know, yeah. You're there because yeah. of you're responsible for what has happened to you when it, when that's not the case. And that's right. And I know I hear people when, when we talk about, well, we could give these people assistance. Well, I'm not getting assistance. I worked for what I got. Great. You have it. Wonderful. But there's other people that doesn't matter how hard they work, they're never going to get what you have. So we should be able to help them. And we can bring them up to your level. It's not going to hurt you. Exactly. Exactly. Couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more, Katie. We've got a lot to do. <laughs> we do. Well, I appreciate you spending the time and the, the patience of getting it hooked up and working. <laughs> Please keep in touch, would you? Yes, I will. I'm sorry. I just kind of yeah. went into a hole over. After I go to a disaster, I just go home and kind of hide in the closet for a while. So. <laughs> I know. I did too. Yeah. But uh, I hope we'll get to work again. I plan on working this year and <laughs> actually saying yes. I hope. And maybe we'll get a chance to be together and 
we'll have some more of these great discussions. Look forward to it. Okay. You take care and don't be a stranger. Okay. Same here. All right. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. Please feel free to give us a rating. We'd be happy to know what you think. Today's disaster tip. If you are aware of a hazard in your area, such as a wildfire, hurricane, or other emergency that may cause you to evacuate your home, consider putting bedding for your family in the car. Shelters do not commonly have things like sheets, pillows, and blankets. While you're at it, toss in a personal hygiene kit. Soap, toothpaste, toothbrush, shampoo, a comber brush, a small lotion. These items will make you more comfortable if you have to stay in immediate emergency housing situations.